Welcome everyone, I'm Joel Van Hoogen, and this is The Bread of Life, a radio ministry of the International Mission Church Partnership Evangelism and its associate fellowship, The Bread of Life Church in Boise, Idaho. One of the overarching principles behind the model of evangelism taught by CPE is to understand that God has called the Christian to gain an identity as an intercessor in his or her community. And it is those intercessions that God particularly works through in preparing lives for the seed of the gospel. Let me encourage you to think of a handful of people you can pray over thoughtfully in the days ahead. To learn more about how God is using us to equip and engage the body of Christ in personal evangelism, discipleship, and church planting, go to breadoflifeboise.org. We're now looking at Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. It introduces us to a whole chapter dedicated to understanding and applying the believer's relationship to the law. In our last broadcast, we learned how the non-believer, the unsaved person, always encounters that law. It is a place where they seek to prove themselves righteous and a place where, failing to do so, they also feel the agitation or aggravation of unrighteous desires, and so they rebel against the law. The law, then, is a burden that suppresses their sinful and selfish instincts, which is a useful thing in society, and it is also a burden they can never fully lift to prove themselves righteous. Now, for the believer, their relationship to the law changes radically. Paul uses an illustration of a woman who's bound to her husband while he lives, but if he dies, she's set free from that husband to get remarried. She's no longer the man's wife, she's his widow. And as a result, if she should choose, she's free to get married again and there's nothing wrong with him. Paul is simply making a legal point here that death ends a legal bond. That death ends a legal bond. And, and, and actually, that's probably the best way to approach the illustration that Paul is using here because if you try to make it too much of an allegory or you try to make it an analogy where you're trying to find everything lines up in what he says, it's hard to line it up and you'll find different commentators come to this passage and they're all arguing about who it is that died and who it is that didn't die and what died and what died to what and it gets quite confusing. But just keep in mind this, that he's giving you an illustration that says that death ends a legal bond. And from that simple illustration, Paul is going to say that Death has ended our bond, our connection to the law. Remember now, the law reveals that we're sinners. It speaks that we're under judgment. It establishes a standard of righteousness that we have no power to attain to in our own efforts, in our own life. It exposes our sinful natures and it actually aggravates that sinful nature. I don't know if you know this with your children, but you always have to kind of figure out when you want to tell them certain rules because you know if you tell them certain rules, instead of turning them away from bad behavior, it'll turn into it. They'll think, well, now they're fixated on that thing. Now they want to do the thing that you said they're not supposed to do. And so if they don't know it, you don't say, now listen, I don't want you to eat any of the cookies in the cookie jar. Now what have you just done? You've just put in their mind there's cookies in the cookie jar and they want to eat it. And so you've almost tempted them. Well, the law kind of does that. It exposes this independent instinct within us to turn away from God. It's kind of the influence that law has on us as well. In fact, Romans 7 verse 5 says that. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear the fruit of death. What is that? All the law did was show us a righteous standard we couldn't measure up to. We 
pursued it and when we failed, we ran away from it and so we juxtaposed ourselves and we bounced back between using the law as a way of finding ourselves and establishing our own self-righteousness and then turning from the law and turning from it in a pursuit of our own self-pleasing and all it did was bring condemnation over us and no matter what we did, it just continued to voice this, we're unfit, we're unfit, we're unfit. That's the relationship it had. And all this, the law was simply exposing our wretched, weak, sinful life. Now what a burden that is. Writing us, calling from us what our nature really is, revealing to us that there's something in our nature that is unwilling to give the one thing that God is looking from us above everything else, which is to love Him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Unwilling to give Him what God really wants above everything else, which is a heart completely surrendered to the lawgiver in love of Him because we're committed to and we're bound up in our own self-love. That's how we live. That's how it was. But then we were saved by grace through Jesus Christ. And when we put our faith in Jesus Christ and when we claimed Him as our Savior, we claimed His death on our behalf and we claimed His resurrection to new life on our behalf. Not only on our behalf, we claimed His death as our own death. And we claimed His life as our own life. With Christ we died. We died to the sentence of the law. We died to the oppression of the law. We died to the declaration of our unfitness in the law. And then in Christ we rose in the fitness and in the majesty and in the glory and in the righteousness of Christ himself. To live for him and to live by his grace and to live by his power. And we're no longer bound to live under the law in that way. And since we're no longer bound to live under the condemnation that was voiced, it went out from Adam and all those who were born in Adam. We're no longer under the marriage of self and sin, bound to our own self and sin. We're no longer interacting with the law as a judge and as a standard that we tried to pay off with our own best efforts, but continually failed at. No, now we're in a new relationship. We've died to that. We've died to it. And we have a new relationship where we're bound to another, to Jesus Christ. So this is the second point. It's this. We are married to Jesus Christ. The old man or nature, having died in Christ, having now been raised in Christ, is brought into union with Christ. And the language is clear here, folks. It's, we are married to Christ. We're not married to Adam. We're not married to the old man we were. We're not in that dominating relationship with the law. However you want to look at it, we have now a relationship to the law that has been done away with, that one that we had before, because now we're not... We're not bound up in a relationship to the law. Instead, we're bound up in a relationship to the lawgiver. We're married to him. We're not engaging the law first anymore. We're engaging him first. Our love starts with a love for the one who gives the law and sets the standard for the law, the Holy One. And we're married to him. There is no more sublime earthly relationship to be found than in a good marriage. Now there's no more horrible relationship to be found in a contentious marriage. You know, the joke is that God gave marriage so that we wouldn't fight with strangers, but that's not the that's just a joke. God gave marriage in order that he might demonstrate how two could become one flesh. How their lives could be commingled together in a depth of commitment and surrender and in acts of love and selflessness, which it's harder to see where one life ends and the other begins. That's marriage. It's wonderful and it's profound and it's bound up in Jesus Christ. When Paul says, my brothers or brothers here, 
when he speaks to them in this tender way, it's because he's getting ready to communicate to them a great mystery of faith that can't be expressed by just snappy logic. It can't be expressed by harsh and strong language and words. It can't be expressed by just parsing the language here. He's delving into a mystery. He's delving into something that has to be communicated with gentle and tender words that cause people to bow their heads in contemplation. It's a mystery. It's profound. It is a mystery. I may have told you, but I've got a shelf full of just books of commentaries from different authors and Romans. And, you know, once I get in the pattern of beginning to teach on Romans, I, at some point in time, I don't refer to all of them. It would take too much of my time. But I'll tell you, in preparation to talk about this, I read them all. I wanted to see what they were saying. I wanted to see what their view was because there's so many parts of this verse that are quite technical and quite hard to hold together and understand. And as you read on, it can get even more confusing. The interesting thing is, in these commentaries, they pick up all these ancillary issues of talking about, you know, who is the one that she was married to before, and who dies, and is it the woman who dies, or is it the old man who dies, and what's the division, and they're trying to parse all these things out, and there's a debate in all of them going over it and discussing it, and then they just jump over the statement that says, we're married to another. They hardly even refer it. Well, this is probably just referring to the fact that Christ and the church are in some way referred to as an example of being bound together. But they just skip right over it. And yet that's the whole point. You've died to all these things that you may be married to another. And I don't know why they skip it. When we come to this passage, we have to pause and recognize that this is a profound mystery. He says, brothers, my brethren, you've been married to another He's evoking, he's saying something that's evocative, that's to bring to the mind something profound and mysterious and wonderful. And You know, in a good marriage, you can't explain why it's a good marriage. Someone came to me and said, now, do you think you have a good marriage? Yeah, I think I have a great marriage. Why? Why is it good? Why is it good? I couldn't explain to them. There's something about it that's mysterious. I do know that something changed in my life and that is that we began to live a relationship with one another where we began to do things for one another. There was a division of labor even the way we lived together. But it's not like this. Well, if you're not going to do it, then I guess I'll have to do it. That's doing it instead of the other person, right? No, we did it for one another. However the division of labor came out, we were filling in the gaps for one another. It was as if they were, we were just working together to live out our lives and... There wasn't some negotiation. I'll do this for you, and then you do this for me. I'll behave in this way, and then I'll get that from you. And Now, as it grew and it matured, and as it became what God intended to be, that began to be dismissed and put out of the way. And it just became something in which we did things together, and we did things for one another. And, but actually, I don't know if I could explain to you what makes a marriage a good marriage. I don't know how I would begin to describe it. I know I have a good marriage. I have a thought that maybe those in a good marriage have had. I don't know how I could ever live without this person. We know the day is coming, very likely, when one of us is going to depart from the other. And we accept that the Bible says there's no giving or taking of marriage in heaven. And although at sometimes it, we want to rebel against that, we know that's what the Word says. And, but I don't know how I can live without this person. We're so bound up we can't even begin to think of our lives without them. 
something we don't even really want to think about. Yet at the same time, to some extent, you have to plan for those things and you have to think about those things because it's good and it's wonderful and we've depended upon one another. But I know some. I know I have to face the reality that it could happen. Now, by the way, you know this woman that Paul uses as an illustration, maybe she was thinking, I can't wait till this guy falls asleep and doesn't wake up. I had a daughter once that came to me and was crying and she was engaged to be married and why? And well, I, I see that there's not marriage in heaven and I can't think of not being married to this man the rest of my life. And I said, oh, listen, look, I know that that's something that you're holding on to, but I mean, for every two or three women that are holding on to the hope that they can marry to their husband or ever, there's seven women that are just holding on to the promise that it ends at death. You know, this is over. So don't take that hope away from them. You know, this is just enjoy what you got for now. Now, I, it'll be an awful day. It'll be an awful day when the day when our marriage to one or another ends and I become a widower or my wife becomes a widow. It's not something in any way we're looking forward to. and We don't like to think about it, but it could happen. We have to face the reality. But here's what I want to say. There's a relationship I have that's far more deep and far more wonderful that I could never imagine being without. And I don't have to imagine it. It's my relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. I am His and He is mine. Forever I am His and He is mine. And, but I know the reality may come when I'm not going to be married one day to my wife. I don't want to face it, but I'll live with it. But I could never imagine and I will never have to face the idea of being parted from my Savior. Thanks for joining us at the Bread of Life, a ministry of Church Partnership Evangelism and the Bread of Life Fellowship in Boise, Idaho. To learn more, go to breadoflifeboise.org. Until the next time, may God bless you.